You're listening to the Business Life and Coffee Podcast, episode 137. Last week, dating expert Greg Swartz helped you build up your confidence on how to approach a potential mate and a potential client. This week, we hear from Dr. James Kelly, author of the upcoming book, Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity, dedicated to helping you transform the things that hold you back into traits that will propel you forward. This episode is brought to you by ConvertKit, email marketing for online creators. ConvertKit is a perfect tool for passively building your email list. And why is that important? Because if you want to have a successful business, people need to know about you. I use ConvertKit to promote a free seven-day leadership course. And now that it's online, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Check out the link in the show notes to begin your free trial. Our review of the week comes from Opoku Island, who says, I love the episode on how you can use social media to expand your business. When you interviewed the guy who advises clients on marketing strategies, I learned a lot about how to size up your business and decide what strategies to use going forward. Not your father's podcast. Hey, I appreciate that. And yeah, Dwayne was a really incredible guest. If you haven't listened to his episode, make sure you check it out. It's one of our recent episodes that come on the podcast. And of course, I want to hear from you as well. So make sure you subscribe and review our podcast on iTunes so that I can read your review on air. While you're listening, screenshot the episode and share to your IG Insta story or Twitter and tag me at Joey V Price HR so we can connect because I love sharing your post on my Insta story too. And now let's get to the show. Hey guys, it's your girl Ashley Graham and you are listening to Business Life and Coffee Podcast with your boy Joey Price. Hello, and thank you for joining another episode of the Business Life and Coffee Podcast. This week, we are joined by Dr. James Kelly, and he is the author of the soon-to-be-released Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. Hey, James, thanks for joining the show. Joey Price, thank you a thousand times over for having me on today. Hey, man, I feel like we are uh, BFFs already. <laughs> We've had a lot of time to chat <laughs> In the uh, in the pre calls and all that, but um, you're just a genuine guy, man. And tell our listeners your story. Like, who is Dr. James Kelly? <laughs> is this like a choose your own adventure? Um, you know, that's like a loaded question for me because I'm I'm I don't want to sound arrogant by any stretch, and I don't know if this comes across this way or not. I'm a guy who wears many hats, and the doctor is probably the smallest hat of the lot. And so my story really starts from the perspective of a lower middle class family, youngest of four. I kind of joke that we were raised in a Catholic household without the Catholicism and the touch of abuse to kind of go with it. Um, And so lots of yelling, lots of screaming, no talking back, kind of typical household. And, And by the youngest of youngest by five years, I had this weird upbringing of being the youngest and the only child at the same time. And I had two parents who, for no fault really to anyone, they were just an unhealthy couple who worked really hard during the week and were really exhausted on the weekend. And so that just exasperated my downtime by myself. We didn't do anything. We took two vacations my whole entire life. One was to the beach for 48 hours and one was <laughs> and one was my dad and I going up to um, Vancouver Island to go fishing with my grandparents. So I didn't have this riveting childhood from an excitement standpoint, but definitely the adversity was there from no communication to my mom only saying that she loved me when she was sauced up on her weekend box of wine. 
So that's my foundation, right? My foundation isn't this one of confidence. It's not this one of security. And it wasn't one of a projected future of success academically or career-wise. And neither of my parents had ambitions. Right. And it's cool I call you James, yeah, right? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, James, you know, cross-referencing your, your story against like your LinkedIn profile and all of the things that I've researched about you on the website, drjameskelly.com, like you are a walking, talking all-star. Like when you say you wear a lot of hats, that's being modest. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a doctor, you're teaching at the UAE, you are in the process of writing a book, you're hosting a successful podcast. This may sound awkward or strange or, or weird or whatever, but the path that you just shared one wouldn't think that that translates into the success that you have today. Well, my parents didn't think it would. So, I mean, I mean, <laughs> my mom, my mom's quote was, I just want you to try college as if like, as if the option wasn't like you could actually make it. Just try it like a piece of chocolate from Switzerland <laughs> and see if you like the nice creamy flavor of that chocolate, right? Like it wasn't as if it was aspirational for me to go to college. It was hopeful. People don't realize that in my book, I'm pretty transparent about this, as you know, Joey, I'm, I don't really hold many cards to my chest. <laughs> Maybe I should. Um, but I, you know, I graduated high school with a 2.5. And the only reason why I got into college, which was under probation, and my SATs, gosh, I don't know what my SATs were, but they were low. I mean, there was no rock star by any stretch. It wasn't even like I was a lazy kid who was smart. I was yeah. just a lazy kid that wasn't smart. And so it was a double whammy. And so um, I went to the University of Dayton, and in Dayton, I got in because I played water polo. And at the time, they were a Division One sport, and I got in as a, uh, under probation. And so I had to take remedial reading, remedial math, and I had to demonstrate that I belonged at the university. And my family was so short on cash that even my first semester there, I was already working 10 hours a week. And for anyone who's played sports in college in your audience, I don't know if you played sports, Joy. Did you play sports? I played sports in high school, but I was not good enough to do that <laughs> in college. <laughs> um, I, arguably, I wasn't. I just picked the right school so I could. But but the reality was is that you know when you play water polo, you practice 20 plus hours a week, and then you travel on the weekends. And we, we weren't a wealthy school or a wealthy funded program, so we had to take a van everywhere. And our trips were always 10, 12 hours long. Long. So you're also then gone the whole entire weekend. So here you are, a kid who struggles academically already, having to work 10 to 15 hours a week, plus he's training 20 plus hours a week, plus he's gone every single weekend. It is a recipe for disaster when it comes to success. And so after my first year of college, I left. And the excuse was, I had two excuses, total BS excuses all the way to the bank. One, I wanted to go back and be with my high school girlfriend, which let's be honest, that almost rarely ever, never, ever works out. So case yeah. in point. And two, I said that I wanted to be a meteorologist. <laughs> so like, which doesn't even make any sense, right? I used to obsess about the weather channel and I thought, oh, maybe I want to be a meteorologist. So, um, and so um, after a year of that, I, I have a vivid story that was so like just etched in my mind. I remember I was, I started selling cars at 19. And it was like, it was, when was it? 1993, 94, somewhere in there. In December of that year, I actually got salesperson of the month. So I sold the most cars at this new and used Chevrolet store in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, two months later, fast forward, I'm like, I'm making it, you know, and, it, and at that time I was making $3,000 a month. And for a 19 year old, that's a lot of dough, a lot of yeah, dough. That's not bad. And so I'm like, I've made it, you know, and, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> the definition of mate is changed grossly, you know, 20 years later and four kids. Um, and, oh, for sure. and so I remember one day walking into the used car shack and this was so vivid for me. And I walk into this shack and there were these two guys and they were hunched over and they had a rolled up dollar bill and they were doing lines of Coke. And they held the dollar bill out to me, just like you would think in the movies, right? And they held the dollar bill out to me and they said, do you want to give it a go? And I just remember like literally in a movie-esque scene, fast forwarding 20 years as a cokehead and being in jail. Like that's just how my head went to. And I just said no. And I walked out and I literally walked into the office and called my mom and said, I want to go back to college. And she was like, whatever it takes. And so I ended up going back to Dayton, which is where I was at and finishing up there in another four years. So I took the extended route. And, um, but even at college, when I graduated, I only graduated with a two, four. So again, I'm not excelling academically. Like I've just not, it's not registering for me. I never taught, I was never taught how to study. I didn't know, I didn't get it. And I probably had a touch of dyslexia. I definitely had a touch of ADHD or ADD, one of the two, cause I couldn't focus for five seconds at a time, very fidgety. And, and it, you know, maybe I'm self-diagnosing here, you know, definitely could be, but you know, my junior year in the summer of my junior year, my dad passes away. So, you know, you're adding to the ability to focus in terms of subtraction by tragedy. And, you know, my junior going into my senior year, I kind of dove into drinking quite a lot as a way to cope. Uh, I don't know if you've, I know you lost your mother-in-law, we talked early on, but when you lose your father at 20, 21, I had just turned 21 after he passed away. Uh, no, before he passed away, sorry, I turned 20 that summer. Not many people around you can understand that. And I was living on an island that felt like global warming was taking advantage of it fairly rapidly. And I was losing ground on the sand in terms of reality. And I felt very isolated, very alone. I had a girlfriend at the time who was amazing, but I was just a complete jerk. Like I just couldn't get my act together. I couldn't sort out priorities. I was super struggling from an insecurity standpoint. And so, you know, I mean, you're 21, you're a guy, you're trying to sort a lot of stuff out. And if you don't come from a healthy background that gave you this security and confidence, it just kind of adds to it when the father figure that you have disappears, you know, and he got sick and passed away in a three month time period or six month time period. So it was really quick. So, I mean, I, don't, I can keep rambling. So anytime you have a question, by any means, Joey, just cut me off. Well, there's, I mean, hearing your story, it, it sounds like a path that is not traditionally... <laughs> Uh, that doesn't <laughs> traditionally end up in success. Well, and yeah. so I know that you're writing a, that you've written a book about thriving in adversity. But was that a conscious thing for you as a child in high school and college? Were you consciously aware of my life is undergoing adversity and I'm going to persevere? Or was it just some subconscious thing where you just powered through and in hindsight, you can look back and say, oh, wow, I made it out. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, when I when I moved, when I quit school, uh, when I was 19, I lit, went and lived with my grandma. And, you know, I, I had a cousin my own age, my aunt. And my grandma had said to me, she's like, you know what? I don't worry about you because you're resilient. You just keep bouncing back. And at the time, it didn't resonate with me. It didn't really. I was like, well, thanks, grandma. You have to say that you're my grandma, right? Like that was kind of the thinking I had. Of course. Like when your mom says you're the most handsome guy alive, I'm like, all right, mom, you're my mom. You have to say that. Um, <laughs> which would be weird if your mom did say you were ugly. But I think that would be a fascinating. So I think she was on to something that I always have had this sense of, I'm going to grind it out no matter what. Like, let me, so, I mean, I, I won't go to the details. I think that the, to answer your question for the book, I think it ruminated inside my head for a very long time. 
And I think that the book is a culmination of my podcast interviewing 140 leaders, doing what you do, like finding out the stories and getting the nuggets that are really interesting. And for me, understanding CEOs' journeys, it's a fascinating story because they all have a unique story to tell and they all have a unique journey. And what fascinated me in this process, which reinforced what I wrote and dovetailed my life was the fact that so many of them had these major life events when they were young or when they were in their early 20s, uh, early 40s, but it was something that shook them to their core and it made them course correct to some degree internally in terms of their self-identity, in terms of the way they related to other people, in terms of the way that they focused on those around them in terms of, of love and caring and compassion. So, I mean, yeah, to answer your question, it's a culmination of all sorts of things that just kind of came to fruition Listeners, you are tuned into Dr. James Kelly. He is an author, podcaster, public speaker, and professor. And he speaks on authentic leadership, inspirational tips, and corporate wellness strategies. And James, let's talk about your book now. I know we kind of set it up a bit with your life um, and, and the fact that you talk to entrepreneurs and get their story and figure out what makes a successful CEO successful. But your book is entitled Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. My first question would be, is thriving in adversity a necessary skill <laughs> to be successful in life? I, lo I love that question because that's that was a major debate between my wife and I. <laughs> so as I'm writing this book. <laughs> oh, well, let's let's take us to the take us to the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take us to that debate. What were both sides yeah. like? What were both sides so, like? Listen, my wife grew up in this idyllic family. Like we couldn't be more polar opposites, right? Her brothers and her all get along. She's she's one of five. They love each other. They hug each other. There's no black sheep. They're all respectful. Like it actually makes you kind of sick how healthy and functional they are as a family. Um, and so one could get very envious. Yeah. Very <laughs> you can hear that by my tone and choice of words. And, and so we when we when I started, she helped me write this book. I wrote this book kind of in a unique way, and she helped me by interviewing me for the book. And so when I in, when I wrote this chapter, which is the second chapter of the Crucible, she said to me the same question you just asked: like, Do you need to have adversity? And so my short answer is yes, but the question is, do you recognize it? And so. And adversity isn't always negative. So I think we have this hookup of thinking that some sort of adversity is a negative adversity. You know, there's a guy I interviewed, a gentleman that I interviewed for my book named the Reverend Richard Pengelly, and he is the dean of the Episcopalian Church in Perth, Australia. He was a two-time Olympian in Australia for water polo, and he was in the middle of his sport at the peak. He was captain of the team heading into his third Olympics, and he walked away to become an Episcopalian priest. So, so he walked away... For religion and you walked away from any other. Yes. Yes. And, and so, and so for him, it was a positive adversity. So, so to go back to your point about, do you need to have adversity? You know, the thing about adversity is that for some of us, if we're not highly self-aware, we don't actually realize we've been through adversity. So Joey, you got married three years ago. That is a crucible moment, but it's a positive moment. And if you're in the moment and you allow that moment to define you in a healthy way, it's positive. You just don't necessarily reflect on the positive because in life, we tend to heavily focus on the negative moments as defining moments. And so do I think that the most successful leaders in the world all had some sort of major adversity? I'm going to hedge towards the 70% to say, yeah, along their journey, whether it was professional or private, they have had something that's had to make them recalibrate how they react and interact with different people across the organization. 
Yeah. So next question. Well, just a comment on that whole thing about adversity and some and it being positive. I agree with that. That. Adversity can be positive because when you think about going to the gym or you think about making a lifestyle change that has a positive outcome for you, you're going to have to go through something that requires some friction, some transition, uh, a, a change in some way that, you know, will cause you to work a little harder, to, to get mentally tougher. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's for a positive thing. So yeah, I, just to echo that point that adversity can be positive and it shouldn't always be looked at in a negative light. Mm, absolutely. I, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I just think often it's it's in the darkness that people talk about, they find light. And, you know, there's there's a thousand percent truth in that. And that's where most people I interviewed, what occurred to them and for them and for myself. The thing is about leadership and people who use their adversity as a springboard to be a better version of themselves, to be more authentic, if you will, is that they had the ability to self-reflect. Now, here's the other thing about adversity, by the way. I think there's a misnomer that, that people seem to believe that when it happens, you know right away. And the reality is that for all of us, it's a different impact. For all of us, it's a different time frame, a different arc, if you will, into how that impacts us. So my dad's death is a great example of there was the initial impact of just the raw loss, but there was the 10-year arc of me transforming as a human being and as a man to be a better father, to be a better husband than my dad. Now, his death is negative. When you talk about what I want him with me now, of course, but would I be the person I am now? Would I have gotten a PhD? I don't think I would have. So that moment was a ripple in the lake that allowed me to go on a different journey because I wanted to be something different than what he was at the time he passed away. So sometimes adversity can confirm who you want to be or even present a picture mm. of what you what you don't absolutely. want to be. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, have you experienced that? I would imagine you have on some level. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> without getting too uh, transparent and personal, you know, there was a health challenge that I had when I was in college. And at the time I was full steam ahead with my undergraduate degree, and it also rolled into my graduate degree. I was in a band. I was super involved in activities and, and work at, at home and school. And um, the health challenge that I had, you know, I just got to the point where at first I was trying to like to do the whole like medicine route, like, okay, medicine, maybe this will help. It's not as invasive as surgery. And then it came to a point where I said, you know, there has got to be more to life and to my life than to being this way and having to operate at like 60% when the world thinks I'm operating at 90 or 100. And, uh, you know, the, the internal and personal challenges that I was experiencing. And uh, I guess the crucible of that is like it helped transform my mind to lean optimistically positive. Mm-hmm. It gave me this resilience, like your grandma would say, to like no matter what, fight through because the challenge is is all about getting through the hurdles and then actually, you know, facing your fears. You know, mm. I was I was deathly afraid of uh, of surgery and what that would mean and how long it would take to recover. But you know, I'm out here living my best life now, and I, it wouldn't have been that way if I didn't have that transformative moment of uh, walking through that health challenge mm-hmm. and 
it's weird. Like when people, so like, you know, my wife didn't know me when I was going through this. So it, you kind of, it's weird to like try to talk about it and you can't really articulate how it felt and what it was. And it's just like, Oh, okay. Like I'm, I'm trying to understand, mm. but it's tough. So it's just this moment that you kind of only hold with a select group of people. It, like my parents knew. And it sounds like you're still okay. processing it a little bit though. Like what does it actually mean? You know, because I mean, if you're not, if you're not, sometimes for me, the way I look at it is that you you might be a private person and that's totally your mm-hmm. thing, right? Yeah. And and I can respect that. But if yeah. you're not, if you're not sharing it with your, your wife in a way that's transparent, I'm not saying you are or not, by the way, but if you're not, yeah. then, then to me, it's still like, you're still processing what, how it is, because most people I found with their adversity is they wear it as a badge of honor, not as a badge of bragging, but as a badge of this transform me. It's not... It's not something that's private because they also realize that other people may be going through something similar and it allows them to use that story, like fear, like the word fear you use to me is like the number one reason why people end up, I don't want to use the word failing, but end up not succeeding the way they hope to succeed. Yeah. You know, and I think that when we embrace embrace fear and lean into fear, you know, there's a motto that I have and I share with my kids and I will share with my kids until the day they decide not to listen to me, which could be tomorrow uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But I, you know, the motto we have in our house is don't let fear conquer you, conquer your fear. And it's a, it's a very powerful mantra that I hope that as they get older and they're faced with choices, that they stop and think about that mantra because they have to discern risk fear from a physical standpoint and risk fear from an emotional standpoint. And it's when the emotional one is preventing you from moving and taking that next potential breakthrough is when I want them and myself and my wife and whomever I talk to to lean into that. Because that's, that's when the growth happens. That's when the moment of transformation happens. When you get through the other side of that emotional fear that's held you back to do whatever it is that you wanted to do. Um, And that's something else that resonated with the leaders that I spoke with. Yeah. Well, how so? Well, I just think when you hear stories about, I'll give you, and this is a great story. There was, there was a woman that I interviewed and, oh God, I'm going to blank out her name. Dang it. Um, <laughs> uh, her name is something something, and oh, this is... if you want to know her name, get the book. <laughs> if you're listening and you want to know her name, no, get the she's book. She's in chapter. She's in chapter two. She's in chapter one. I mean, the Crucible chapter. Oh, it's gonna make me mad. Anyhow, she owns her own art. Bridget Mayer. There we go. So she owns her own art gallery. But here's Bridget Mayer's story, and I think this is a prime example of leaning in when you don't realize that you should be leaning in, and she does it. Bridget Mayer's mom, Bridget was born and raised up till nine in Southern New Jersey. And in Southern New Jersey, her mom was a drug addict and a prostitute. And Bridget and her six siblings, there was five or six siblings, lived in a one bedroom apartment with no food, no bed. And up till nine, Bridget was in and out of the hospital for beatings. She drank out of a toilet bowl because she wasn't tall enough to get in the sink. Um, She didn't have food. She would wander the streets. And at nine, her and her two sisters got adopted, one older, one younger. And they all went to the same home. And here's the part to me that's always re- – this is the only interview where I've, where I've ever virtually cried. I had tears coming down my face, but it wasn't a full-blown ball. Her, her older sister commits suicide eventually. So fast forward. Oldest sister commits suicide. Youngest sister in and out of drug rehab, prostitution, has tons of problems, can't keep herself straight. Bridget goes on to college goes on to run a successful art gallery out of Philadelphia, goes on to open a consulting art firm in LA, and is making millions of dollars as one of the best art gallery owners in the USA. What is it about her that was inside of her that made her make the choices that she needed to make to be a better version of herself and to break the chain? 
And for her, when we talked, she talked about the idea of not being afraid of the what if, not being afraid of making different choices, not being afraid of asking for help, and really appreciating the fact that for some reason, she was nudged at certain times in her life with people around her to make different choices than she would have otherwise made. But it was her idea of not being handcuffed to her past. And she moved because, you know, often many of us, perhaps you, I know me for sure, we use our past to predict our future. And when we do that, we actually limit the possibilities of our future. And Bridget had every right to do this, every right to say, this is how I was raised. I was beat. I was in a foster home. I was never fully loved, blah, 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 blah. And she chose not to have that future. She chose to create her own future and her own possibilities and to decouple herself from the past. And that actually means fighting your fear of the unknown. And that, that is an example that, that has resonated uh, with people who have read the book. So James, I'm not going to ask you to give all of the five lessons from the book, because then that will mean people don't read the book. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I don't want this to, to wind is up being like the cliff. <laughs> this is like, no, this is like the, uh, this, this won't be the cliff notes version of the book. But what I will ask are like, you know, what are some, um, if you could give like a blueprint or even three practical things that a listener could take from this episode and apply to their life as far as how to face and thrive in adversity. Yeah. So, so listen, I, I won't go into the details of, of, I'll give you the five lessons. I don't really care um, because they're very common sense. And I think that is, it's what I did at the back of the book. And in the back of the book, I partnered with two clinical psychologists, one from Penn, one from Columbia, uh, around actionable items that you could do. So I won't give you all of those because there's like 30 of them and you got to get off this and live your life. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the way I way I wrote the book is that everything starts with your own personal crucible, but it's what you do in that is what matters most. And so what I found with the leaders that I interviewed is that the ones who embrace their crucible, whether it was immediately, 10 years from then, six, six months later, whatever, they increase their self-awareness. They learn to live with compassion, not only for others, but for themselves, which is a huge part about all of this. Uh, they started living their life with integrity, behavioral integrity. I leave moral integrity out of it. I talk about it briefly, but I think we all have our own moral compass. And I don't want to say whose moral compass is more right than others, but we know there's certain moral things we just don't do. Uh, they also... Yep. They also is this concept that I came up with called relatableness. It's not a real word. I'm going to make it one. But the concept of it is that, that leaders, and maybe you can't, you've come across these people, Joey, in your life, but there are certain leaders that have this crazy ability to meet people where they're at, regardless of the position in the organization, and make a connection, a moment. Um, and I call these micro moments of meaning in an organizational setting. And then the last thing that these people all had was the ability to learn. They had a growth mindset. And so if you want some actionables, we can start with just self-awareness. Self-awareness is a very simple concept. It's just hard for many people to face the realities of, of maybe some negative attributes of their life. And so one thing that I always recommend to people is just journal. Ask yourself a basic question is, am I better today than I was yesterday? If so, how? You know, there's this idea of creating active questions when you're asking yourself for journaling something. So am I being honest with myself about being the best person? And, and the idea is never to, you, you want to write the questions in a way that focuses you to answer them about yourself 
and to exclude the external environment as an influence. So often when there's when there's journaling exercises or questions that you're asking or trying to answer, you can always blame the external environment. So for example, did I eat healthfully today? Well, I was at a conference and they had sweets there, so I ate a sweet, so it's the conference fault, right? But if you write, did I make every attempt possible to avoid uh, did I make every attempt possible to eat healthfully? Well, that's that's a yes or no. And it's not an external, you can't blame anyone else because it's, it's on your control to do it. That's the kind of the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. You know, when we take the idea of compassion, and I think this is really important, and not only from self-compassion, forgive yourself, forgive yourself. I think sometimes we're too hard on ourselves for the sake of, of feeling like we have to be a perfectionist. But just from a compassion organizational perspective, you know, the difference between empathy and compassion is that in compassion, you're you're compelled to, and this is by definition, this isn't, I'm not making this up, is that you are compelled to relieve someone else's suffering. The word suffering is such a loaded word, and I talk about this in the book. Suffering could be something as little as, hey, Joey, you're sitting down and you're thirsty. Can I grab you some water? It's a it's a minuscule thing to do in a day in an organization in a setting, but that little event of selflessness can have a huge impact within the organization all the way around. And so if you can start creating that organizational culture around just compassionate action, then the, the and the research is clear on this, it comes back to pay for itself tenfold. And the last thing I'll leave you with is the idea of relatableness. You know, these ideas of micro moments are such an impactful thing. You know, the research talks about that every time there is a positive interaction with an organization, when you multiply that out, the day is a net positive day. Within that net positive day, what happens is that you're actually more productive. That means you also then have less sick days. It also means you have people that are more engaged in the workforce. And engagement in the U.S. is 31%. That's really low, right? Like that's a really low engagement rate. Imagine if you can actually get that to 40%, the amount of productivity and ROI you're going to get out of your employees in the organization. And so what I like to talk about is, is creating the opportunity to have micro moments of meeting in the organization, which is a, it's a philosophy of wanting to interact with those around you in a positive, meaningful way with intent. So listen with intent. And those are kind of the big three things. Awesome. Hey, you guys have been listening to James Kelly, Dr. James Kelly, and he's the author of The Crucible's Gift, which you can pre-order starting March 25th at thecruciplesgift.com. Also, you can check out his website, uh, drjameskelly.com. That's D-R-J-A-M-E-S-K-E-L-L-E-Y.com. And James, I've enjoyed having you on the show, man. I try to give the guest the last word on every episode. So I'd love for you to close this out. How can people reach you? What are your final thoughts? And uh, what are you looking forward to next? Awesome. So you can reach me at joeyprice.com. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so you, you gave all the great contact details, you know, so Dr. James Kelly, Twitter account is executive a uh, executive a hour. Got to remember that. I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, so if you just Google me, you find me on YouTube. I do uh, a one once a week. I do a vlog on some sort of topic that comes out of the book. Um, and more importantly, people, I just want you to be good human beings. You know, right now in, in the society that we live in, the level of divisiveness is is sickening. And if you look at history to inform your future, you will see that we are starting to rip ourselves apart. And you will see that because we do not have tolerance for the other, we are losing the ability to listen. And so I just would ask you to listen to your neighbors, listen to your coworkers, uh, and listen with compassion and intent. And when you do that, the world will open to the opportunities to the other, the other possibilities that you could have out there in terms of engagement. If you've recently started a business, why take away time from what you're good at? 
only to focus on difficult, pesky HR problems. Jumpstart HR LLC offers a better solution. Jumpstart HR provides HR outsourcing support to U.S.-based small businesses and startups and was recently ranked among the top 10 HR outsourcing firms in the country, according to businessnewsdaily.com. From recruitment to employee handbooks to legal compliance, Jumpstart HR helps you get peace of mind about the people in your business. Visit jumpstart-hr.com for more information or follow on Twitter at jumpstarthr. Jumpstart HR, let's build a better business together. Thanks for listening to the Business Life and Coffee Show with Joey Price. We hope you're inspired to become the best version of yourself after listening to our guest. What thought or idea stood out the most to you? Keep the conversation going by tweeting the show at BizLifeCoffee or our host at Joey V. Price HR with the hashtag BLC Moments. And if you like what you just heard, pass along our podcast to at least five people. Detailed show notes can be found at www.businesslifeandcoffee.com. And our full archive is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play. This has been a Jumpstart HR production. Join us next time for another edition of the Business Life and Coffee Show.